You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hi, folks, and welcome to Let's Talk Apple episode 41, the show for January 2017. I'm your host, Bart Bouchas, and joining me is a fantastic panel, which by pure accident is split 50-50 both sides of the Atlantic. So uh, joining me on the European side of the Atlantic, we have Nick Riley from the United Kingdom. Hi, Nick. Hi, Bart. Good to be back again. Always a pleasure to have you, Nick. And then representing the other side of the Atlantic, uh, we have Chuck Joyner from Mac Voices back with us. Hi, Chuck. How are you, Bart? Good to be here. Delighted to have you, Chuck. And also Guy Searle from the My Mac podcast. Hi, Guy. It's getting harder and harder to keep a positive spin on this. Hi, Bart. <laughs> I won't do that for the rest of the show. So, well, I mean, to most people, you know, like losing their sight would be a major deal. But I sometimes think if someone took your soundboard away, it would be the end of the world. <laughs> it would be. It would for me. Yeah. It's, yeah. Anyway, we have oh so much Apple news to talk about. So we're just going to dive straight into it. And the first thing I want to do is a few follow ups from stories we talked about in the December 2016 episode of the show. Uh, so the first is we have resolution on the Consumer Reports issue with the MacBook Pros. Um, I believe I was quite critical of Consumer Reports for not having figured out why their results were so weird before actually going ahead and publishing. And I stand by that, to be honest. Uh, but now we know why their results were so weird. So what they were doing in their real-world test was enabling developer mode in Safari... And disabling caching. And it turns out there was a bug in that which caused the battery life to be gobbled up. So Apple are fixing the bug and Consumer Reports are retesting in light of this. And the end result is that Apple have patched the bug and that Consumer Reports have recommended the MacBook Pro. So I guess all's well that ends well. But they could have arrived at this final outcome without all the intermediate hoo-ha-ha in between, in my opinion. Well, Apple, you know, saying bad things about Apple gets you lots of attention. So, and Consumer Reports is, I think, still primarily a, a print magazine, at least here in the States. So, Do they you know, they... Elsewhere? I sort of see them as a U.S. institution. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but I've always seen them as being a very American thing. Yeah, I think they are. Yeah. I, I feel like this gave... Consumer Reports a bit of a black eye, unfortunately, because it it called into question their quote unquote real world testing. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many real world people are out there turning on developer mode? And that just the whole description, and we won't get into it unless you want to, Bart. But you know, the whole idea of the methodology that ended up un, un, unveiling a a bug in the in Safari, no question about that. But it, you know, I, I've I've before have looked at Consumer Reports as very much real world results for real world people, and you know, this this kind of called a little bit of that, that into question for me. Yeah, I guess it's very hard to devise an automated real-world test. And maybe the only actual test they could have done was to give it to 10 employees and say, go live. Well, <laughs> the, the, other, the other part of the problem is they're testing Windows laptops where I, apparently something like this isn't a problem. And uh, the Mac OS laptops using the same criteria. 
And it, it's not a question of whether or not that's fair. It's a question of how accurate are you with your settings when you have one laptop that essentially, talking about the Mac, is set up exclusively for that operating system, whereas most Windows laptops are catch-as-catch-can. You know, whatever particular build the manufacturer had at the time that they made the machine. It's, yeah, they're, maybe they're trying to be too rigorous. Either way, it, it didn't work out well for them, but at least all's well that ends well. Um, the other story that's winding down, I think, it's come to its conclusion, is uh, Samsung's Galaxy Note 7 Armageddon, whatever Megate Kenray calls it, um, Fiery Hellscape Mageddon Gate or something. At, we now know why they caught fire. It was bad batteries replaced with other, differently bad batteries. Um and Samsung have decided that it's probably a good idea to delay the release of the Note 8 so they can learn from their mistakes. And I don't think anyone is going to argue with them on that point. That's probably indeed quite wise. And yeah, well, it's not a surprise they're blaming batteries instead of a potential design flaw. Well, no, I mean, they're saying that they misdesigned the batteries is what they're saying. I mean, they didn't leave enough room uh, for them to do the expandy thing, which they will inevitably do when they get hot. So, I mean, they did... It, the flaw was in the design of their batteries, and they admitted that, which is good. Uh, and they seem keen to learn from the fact that that flawed design made it through their processes, and it really shouldn't have. That should have been picked up before they sold a million or two of them or whatever amount of them they sold. Uh, and then the final sort of wrap-up is Verizon are getting very serious about getting those last few uh, Fire Phones recalled. Uh, they have now started to block outgoing or intercept, we'll say, outgoing calls from the remaining owners of the Fire Phone uh, and redirecting them to customer support in Verizon, where I guess they beg them to pretty please give them back uh, and accept another phone in exchange. So it looks like that, that saga is coming to an end for uh, Samsung. So let's jump into notable numbers. And the first thing here is not so much a story as just something I just want to recommend. If anyone hasn't read it yet, I would recommend having a look at this. So Six Colors have started the tradition of doing a report card on Apple as one year ends and the next year begins. And so they have done their Apple 2016 report card. And it's just full of interesting graphs and facts and figures and things. And I just I just thought it was an interesting read. Um and I just wanted to recommend it to people. So that, that's kind of uh, just all I wanted to do in that one. Links in the show notes. Show notes over at lets-talk.ie. Actually, while I'm talking about the show notes, uh, I, I do actually want to draw people's attention to a slight change in how I'm doing the show notes. A subtle formatting change. Um, generally speaking, I will write my own description of the link and then put the link after it. So that will be my voice you're reading. Uh, but sometimes I copy and paste the original headline and then it's not my voice. And it didn't used to be obvious when it was me talking and when it was someone else talking. So what I've decided to do is that whenever it's not me talking, I will extend the link the whole way around the headline. So if it's all a link, it's not me talking. And if it's non-linky text, it's me talking. So then you can see what's editorial and what is the original headline from the original news source. So uh, just letting you know. Okay, so... Apple started the year by releasing some numbers for us. So Apple told us in a press release that on the 1st of January 2017, the App Store had its best ever day, and it made, in that one day, $240 million in purchases. Wow. Which is a lot of money. <laughs> and that in total so far, 
Oh, sorry, in the whole of 2016, developers earned $20 billion, which is up 40% from 2015. That's like the GDP of a small country. And it's coming from a corporation's app store for one of their operating systems. So that's and if you think, uh, and Apple gets thirty percent of that twenty billion. Yeah, for which the is most not part. Going. Yeah. No, but it's no wonder why services is becoming like one of their their biggest money makers. Yes, which we will get to. Oh, sorry. Well, no, no, I mean, yeah, you can say it. We, I mean, you know, but we'll talk about the whole earnings call in general. But yeah, that is definitely one of the the big shifts is that the services business is one that Apple are pointing all their fingers at and saying, look at this, look at this, look at this. Um, an interesting, I guess it just proves the market is, is nascent and small, but a report from Slice Intelligence suggests that the Apple AirPods in their few short weeks of existence have captured a quarter of the wireless headphones spending. So not a quarter of units, but a quarter of sales. Uh, I guess they're not the world's cheapest headphones, but uh, actually, how much are the AirPods? Is, is anyone has anyone bought a pair? I think here in the states they're one forty nine. Oh, then I have spent exactly as much on my wireless headphones, even though they weren't from Apple. Never mind. I was going to say apples are more expensive, but no, my uh, my Trex titanium bone conduction headphones were in that sort of ballpark as well in dollars. I'll look that up. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So yeah, it's interesting. I'm looking it up now. How it must be quite a small market if Apple can dive in and take a quarter in less than a month. Um, it does also mean there was a pent up demand, or maybe Apple created the demand by taking out the headphone jack. I'm not quite sure which, but it's interesting that obviously these AirPods are not—they're going over well. They're not being seen as a problem. Perhaps it's um, down to part of it is down to the fact that um, Bluetooth headphones have always had such a bad reputation. That people what? aren't aren't attracted to them, hmm. whereas Apple's have already got very good reviews, and so people are buying them. Yeah, one fifty nine. One fifty nine. Okay, so okay, so slightly more expensive than what I paid. I think I may I paid one hundred and four pounds sterling for my headphones. Well, though, when you take sterling to dollar, maybe it's not a million miles away. Uh, I'm not quite sure what the exchange rate is these days. Yeah. I, I, Bluetooth headphones definitely suffer from the fact that early Bluetooth headphones were awful. But I've been using exclusively Bluetooth headphones for a couple of years now, and I think they're wonderful. But I appear to be in a minority because everyone I say this to looks at me like I have four heads. <laughs> well, I think every, when you're wearing any Bluetooth headgear of any kind in public, a lot of times you get these funny looks, whether it's an earpiece or headphones. I have to wonder if this is going to be with their very distinctive design and distinctive white color. Mm. Is this going to be the next iteration of Apple's white earbuds? Maybe. Where now now it's going to be cool and it's going to be okay to wear this in, in public as opposed to, you know, the some of the the lesser um, oh, lesser viewed Bluetooth earpieces. Well, because I have bone conduction headphones, people just have no idea what they are because they don't cover my ears. They don't go into my ears. They're just on my head. <laughs> people have all sorts of weird ideas like, you know, am I deaf and is this some sort of cochlear implant? They have the weirdest of notions. But anyway, um, I, I love my Bluetooth bone conduction headphones. Yeah. Yeah, because you and I have talked about it, Bart. I've got uh, an earlier model of the of the aftershocks that you have, and I really like them too. But again, you know, you get those strange looks, and occasionally somebody will have the courage to ask about them. Um, but but this, 
you know, this is starting to get enough publicity where people aren't going to walk up to you and say, is there something wrong with your ear? Yeah. You know, so I, and I think that's a good thing because it, it, it opens up the market for everyone, not just Apple. And, if, and of course, we're an Apple oriented operation here. But, you know, I, I think it's a good thing overall. Yeah. And the, yeah. So Apple are definitely driving that whole market into sort of kickstarting it from a minority into a more mainstream thing, which is good. Um, but also the fact that Bluetooth 5 has now been announced, which means that the whole, it should just get better. Bluetooth should just get better over the next while. So hopefully this is this sort of becomes the new norm. That It's not like, oh, wow, what a weirdo, you're using Bluetooth headphones. It'll, it'll become the normal thing, and I think Apple are definitely helping to, to make that so. Uh, next then, so there were actually... Two stories. So at the start of the month, uh, some reporting, I think it was from the Wall Street Journal, estimated how much sales there were, uh, conversions basically for Super Mario Run. So, you know, yeah, lots of people downloaded the free version, but how many people actually paid their $10 to unlock the game? And the estimates at the start of the month were saying it was about 3% or less. But Nintendo have had their earnings call, and now we don't have to guess. Now we know, and uh, what Nintendo are saying is that the conversion rate is over 5%, which is, it sounds low, but actually they say there were 78 million downloads and 5% of those 78 million people paid $10. So they made 5% of $780 million, which is a lot of money. So actually the game has been a really big hit for them and a a genuine moneymaker for Nintendo, which is, I think, positive and maybe unexpected. Well, it's good for the platform since it may encourage other major uh, developers to jump in as well. Yeah. Uh, Another statistic that caught my eye in the notable numbers section is that uh, a company called Upwork, which is sort of a a website for freelancers, and they're they're big on saying that freelancing is the future, um, and they track the skills that people are looking to pay freelancers to provide. And the second ranked skill for the last quarter of last year was Swift. So it seems that Apple have certainly um, struck a chord with this new programming language and that people seem to want to develop their apps for the App Store, presumably, in Swift, which is probably a good sign for the health of Apple's ecosystem. And the final number I have here that caught my eye, because it's just so sudding weird... Hardback books have overtaken ebooks again. So we went from a world where we mostly killed trees and then we all started downloading it and now the trees are back and the trees are in the lead again over the ebooks. Which is really unusual. It's like Concord. We used to be go slower than sound, then we went faster than sound, and now we go slower than sound again. It's. What have audiobooks done so wrong that they've gone, or not audiobooks, um, e-books done so wrong that they've gone, they've fallen behind traditional books again? Any, anyone have any thoughts? Uh, for, I would for, say, it, I'm sorry, go ahead, Chuck. No, I'll, I'll just jump in real quick. For, for my money, I think it's all the competing formats. I think it's this idea that I'm not sure if I buy format A, if the company or the or the device that I'm reading it on now is going to be around in a while. Hmm. And and I realize Apple has potentially contributed to this um, with the iBooks f- formats, but I yeah. think that 
that's the the biggest problem. I I hear people starting to to question this, and it's it is kind of amazing when you stop and look at what you can spend on books without too much trouble. You can have a pretty substantial investment in let's say eight to eight to twelve months if you are an avid reader. And the idea that all of a sudden that could all go away, I mean, shades of my, you know, LP slash cassette slash eight track collection that I've paid for something three, four, five times. Yeah. And, and I think people people are starting to realize that there's a lesson in that and maybe being a little more conservative. And paper's kind of forever, at least at this point. Well, I think the uh, the, the biggest problem is DRM. Yeah, and that's why you can't. You know, you should be able to 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 buy an ebook on Amazon, and regardless of what applications you have, if you have an application that'll read a PDF, you should be able to read it on a Fire tablet or an iPad or you know Joe Blow's Android tablet from outer space. You know, it it shouldn't matter where you read the book, and of course, you know, I mean, the excuse that's always given is, well, we want to prevent piracy. Well, again, you aren't preventing people that want to pirate it from pirating it. All you're doing is making it inconvenient for the people that actually want to give you money. And music sales, once they took off the DRM, proves this. Yeah, it's if the user experience is better for pirates than for paying customers, you're doing it wrong. Exactly. So nothing gets wouldn't... me as worked up as freaking DRM. <laughs> Nick? So um, I also, I also wonder whether it might be something to do with the sort of analog backlash, uh, a bit similar to vinyl, uh, in that a lot of the people I speak to, particularly, um, I've got one or two friends who are librarians. Mm-hmm. It, it's the tact. It, it's to do with the tactile feel of a book in their hands and they'll they'll never go across and perhaps some people have tried the digital version and they quite like the portability of it but they sort of miss the 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 smell and 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 the feel of having a physical book in their hands and 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 the ability to be able to pick it up anywhere regardless of whether you've got power in your device and, and all those sort of things and so i just wonder whether it's a little bit of that you know, actually, we really quite like books. Well, it must be, right? Because ebooks overtook everything and then they fell back. So falling back means that people are having a second thought. They're going, actually, do you know something? This isn't what I, what I, I I'm not as happy as I thought I'd be. I'm, I'm going back to the old way. And that's a pretty strong indictment of, uh, well, I guess probably the strongest indictment of Amazon who have the market pretty well caught. Pretty much showed up. Yep. So, A related story caught my eye because it crossed over the news feeds just a few days after the the hardback story. The International Digital Publishing Forum, who are the group who set standards for e-publishing, so EPUB and those kind of things, have merged with the World Wide Web Consortium, the W3C, who set standards for stuff like HTML, CSS and JavaScript. In other words, the web people and the e-book people have merged into the same people, and what we are expecting is that the future of ebooks is basically self-contained webby experiences that are designed to be experienced without an internet connection. So more, I think, in line with where Apple went with their ebooks, which is very much that kind of an experience where it's a lot more than just a transliteration of the book. It's, it's, it's got more to it. You can 
you know, things can move and things can interact with you much more than they would in an EPUB. So I, I don't know if people mm. think that'll help or not, uh, but certainly as a as a webby sort of developer person, it caught my eye a bit anyway. That's an interesting marriage. I'm curious if, if, if it strikes anyone else as interesting. Well, does the W3C also manage the standards for HTML? Yes. Aha. Well, that adds a little wrinkle to it. HTML5 is like, you know, it's made for multimedia. Right. But HTML5, so basically, if you could imagine that the people responsible for HTML5 are now helping to develop the next version of ebooks, I can see that being as a good synergy if you take HTML5 and then expand it in such a way that it's designed to be offline instead of being designed to be online. Could get interesting. Yes, very much so. And, and is this part of the problem, though, that, I mean, do we really want an ebook that is something that's beyond a, a book or, a you know, an ebook? I mean, has that been part of the issue? And, and, I'm, and I'm not suggesting that we need artificial barriers here, but right now a website is a website and a book is a book. And whether whether some of the younger generations moving forward will expect something more multimedia and multimedia absolutely has its place. No question. But I just, I I personally get a little concerned about ebook standards that might almost require a multimedia inclusion. That's yeah, I guess it's see, I can see, I can see from both sides because on the one hand, if I have a novel, I don't really want it dancing around the page. I just like to read it, please, because it's, the art of a novel is in the wordsmithing, and so the words are all that matters and the rest is irrelevant. But if I buy a popular science book, I'd actually really quite like all the other stuff. So I guess you want the standard to support it, but you don't want to end up in a situation where people feel that if I don't include all these fancy twiddly bits that I'm doing it wrong, and that is a danger for sure. Well, yeah. look at uh, uh, Blu-ray and DVD with all the extra little bits they now put in besides just the movie. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, a lot on a lot of them, that's better than a darn movie that you're about to watch. I think you need to choose your movies more carefully because usually the conclusion I come to when I look at the extras on a DVD is, ah, I see why that was cut. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'm I'm kind of with you, Bart. I I, I want to see the movie. I mean, unless I'm just an intense fan of the director. Yeah. Or an intense fan of, and inevitably we come up with Star Wars or Star Trek, you know, that that I want, I, I'm, I'm intense about those. But if it's just the latest, I don't know what's coming out recently because I don't pay that much attention. But if it's just your average tearjerker or action film, I'm not sure that I really need the backstory of uh, of the character or the director or anything. It's just like, okay, show me the movie and, you know, then it's time for dinner or then it's time, you know, for whatever. But it, I, I don't know. I, I personally, I seldom look at all all the DVD, Blu-ray extras. I'm really there for the movie and that's it. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. The, the, there's a few exceptions. Like if if I buy a box set of something I really, really love, yeah, I want all the nitty-gritty detail. Like the the box set of the Star Trek, the original series, I want those interviews with with the actors 50 years on or whatever, you know, but that's the exception. So much the exception. Yeah, exactly. Okay, let's move into legal latest. Um, let's put a pin in this first story. I think it's one we'll be returning to as it makes its way through the court system. So the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals has allowed a class action lawsuit accusing Apple of having a monopoly on the Apple App Store to proceed. So this, to me, is a case that 
is equivalent to saying that Ford have a monopoly on Ford cars. It, it just seems stupid on its face. But anyway, the judge has decided that it is not stupid enough to just throw out of court, but it should actually go and have its day in court. So I guess we'll come back to this story when that day arrives. Um, if anyone is there, anyone who disagrees with my characterization of this, my characterization of this as stupid. Um, I I don't necessarily uh, disagree, but I think the standard. If you were going back to your car analogy, mm-hmm. it's not so much that you know. Think of like an iPad or an iPhone, and the operating system is the car and the engine. And then the applications are the gasoline that make you want to use device XYZ. Well, by by basically saying you can only get your gasoline from one place, you know, maybe that's where they're kind of saying that it, it's a monopoly. You see, the thing is, Apple don't have even a majority of the market, not even nearly a majority of the market, let alone something approaching a monopoly of the market. So I completely agree. So what Apple are offering, the way I look at it is what Apple are offering is the choice of a walled garden and the advantages it brings. And that is something they are throwing into the open and free marketplace. And to have this notion, like anyone who doesn't believe in the App Store model is free to go to Android because there already is a place where you have a free-for-all and it's called Android and it comes with an awful lot of downsides. But if you like that thing, off you go. The notion that we should force Apple to make the same mistakes Google made is, is <laughs> dumb. So that's my take on it. You're basically looking at the world too narrow, zoom out, look at the entire mobile industry and realize that Apple have nothing like a monopoly. How, how can they have a monopoly if, as a, a potential developer, I can apply and assuming I meet the standards, mm. I can put my app in there? And also you as the I mean, developer choose the price, not Apple. Yes. I mean, in, in every way, if they're looking at it as a monopoly on, oh, well, I can't sideload. Well, OK, you know, that's fine. But Apple has chosen a particular I mean, that that to, to try to twist your and your Ford analogy. Um, OK, so is, is it a monopoly that Ford won't sell me a car that goes 500 miles an hour? You know, I, I, it, it just it breaks down in so many ways. In, in this, and I don't see the monopoly. I don't see the discrimination or whatever. You know, you have to apply. You have to be responsible. You have to meet the walled garden requirements. But monopoly? No. I, this. I'm sorry. This is this is some class action lawyers somewhere that are looking to to make money. Because yeah, they're also well, hopefully seeing... they'll keep it out of East Texas. Well, yeah. it's not a patent case, so I don't know how East Texas are and these kind of things. So they're arguing that the app stores, the apps are overpriced because Apple have a monopoly, and it's like Apple don't set the price. And if you think the apps are overpriced, you're a complete moron who doesn't value the work of developers at all because apps are horribly underpriced and the actual work put in by developers is being really poorly paid, in my humble opinion, which is not humble at all. So in my opinion. Um, so the next story in Legal Aid is basically the entire world has decided that Qualcomm are evil and they're all piling on to poor Qualcomm all at the same time. I certainly wouldn't like to be a Qualcomm executive. Um, so the month started off with the U.S. Uh, Federal Trade Commission charging Qualcomm with anti-competitive tactics to retain a monopoly on the supply of key semiconductor devices used in cell phones. Apple then piled on with a $1 billion lawsuit in the U.S. against Qualcomm over patent licensing. They claim that, among other things, Qualcomm owe them an awful lot of money from patents that they have cross-licensed with them. 
And then they followed up a few days later by filing two lawsuits against Qualcomm in China over similar issues. Uh, so basically, the industry is not happy with Qualcomm's approach to what are theoretically FRAND patents, which is you're supposed to have fair, reasonable F4. I don't remember what the A in FRAND is. Non-discriminatory is the ND. Basically, if you and have a patent, perhaps. if you have a fair reasonable for... Hmm, anyway. Well, it's, it it's for and, like a mandatory... <laughs> yeah, so basically, if you have a patent on something that is required to make the technology go, you're allowed to have the patent, you're allowed to monetize it, but you're not allowed to extort people with it. And there is a feeling that Qualcomm are abusing their position, their very privileged position in the mobile market. And apparently the way their licensing works is that they don't get a percentage on the cost of the component. They get a percentage on the cost of the actual finished product. So when Apple increased the amount of memory in an iPhone, they also have to pay Qualcomm more money, even though it's the same chip from Qualcomm that they got otherwise. And that effectively means Qualcomm want a royalty on everything else that goes into an iPhone apart from the stuff that they made, which Apple say is unfair. So basically the screen is probably the most difficult to make an expensive component in a phone but the chip actually costs more because of the way Qualcomm do their licensing so it, it's the more I've been reading on it the more I'm going wow you Qualcomm people were clever evil genius clever but very clever <laughs> and I, I'd be curious to see how this one pans out okay and then the final story I have in here I have in here out of pure I did. We're not quite sure what the phrase is, but basically this made me cranky and I was going to ignore the story and then it became two stories about exactly the same thing and then I decided, oh, fine, we'll talk about it. So there are two separate lawsuits against Apple because Apple patented an idea they had about a way that you might be able to make a phone not work if you're driving your car. Now, actually, this patent would probably have a whole bunch of problems for passengers in cars, but leaving that aside, it doesn't sound really relevant. There are people who were in the receiving end of accidents where some irresponsible schmuck decided to drive their car while using their cell phone. And rather than it being the fault of the irresponsible schmuck, some people think we should sue Apple over this. Because Apple had a patent they didn't use and therefore it's not the irresponsible schmuck who has personal responsibility in a democracy. Somehow it's Apple's fault. And it makes me fume that we have this notion that we should hold some corporation somewhere responsible for the fact that people are morons. Come on, Bart. That, this is easy to understand. You know why they're doing it, don't you? Apple it's, has it's money. It's all, yeah, it's all about the money. It's all, I mean, the, the, the people, and I haven't looked into this, but I, I bet, and at the very least, that they're looking for a co-defendant to pull in you know, that has deep pockets. Well, in one of the two cases, it does seem to be about money. But actually, the other case is slightly more interesting because the person in question is not looking for monetary damages. They just oh, want yeah. to force Apple to put this technology into their phones. But, I mean, is it actual technology that has been developed and is usable? Or is it mostly no. just, hey, wouldn't it be kind of cool if we did this? It's the latter, right? That's how, that's when you file a patent in America, in the under the American patent system. When you have right. a cool idea, you file a patent. No, it's not developed technology. So, yeah, Urgh. makes me cranky. If yeah, anyone wants this... to disagree with me, please speak up, because otherwise I'll, I'll be monopolizing the point of view. No, no. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. 
Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. Personal responsibility. Take your own, folks. Take your own. Yeah, I would agree completely. Okay, so with that, let's move into the first of our four main stories. And this is a... I don't... These were the most difficult show notes I've had to write in quite some time, and I have a feeling I'm going to be doing more of this over the coming couple of years. But basically, as much as I would love this show to be entirely divorced of politics, unfortunately, politics has gone and stepped on our Apple news uh, in the form of the new regime in the United States. Um, So President Donald Trump issued an executive order on immigration and refugees and... Obviously, if you're into the politics of these kind of things, there's an awful lot to talk about. But this has a real effect on tech companies, and that's the angle I want to take on it on this show. Um, I, I think I, I, I said off air that if I wanted to talk politics, I'd have started a politics show, and I didn't start a politics show, which should give you some idea of how I, you know, that I don't want to talk politics. But anyway, here we here we are. So I have in the show notes a whole bunch of links, sort of linking to the fact. So I'm just gonna. Read through the headlines and then we can discuss. So the first is we have U.S. tech leaders sound alarm over Trump immigration order. Then we have Apple response to President Trump. Actually, I think being as an Apple show, we should give Apple a little bit of uh, extra air. So Tim Cook uh, sent an email to all staff, um, which I think is probably worth having a read of. So... Uh, there are employees at Apple who are directly affected by yesterday's immigration order. Our HR, legal and security teams are in contact with them and Apple will do everything we can to support them. Uh, we're providing resources on Apple Web for anyone with questions or concerns about immigration policies and we have reached out to the White House to explain the negative effect on our co-workers and our company. As I've said many times, diversity makes our team stronger. And if there's one thing I know about, uh, sorry, I know about the app, the people at Apple, it's the uh, depth of our empathy and support for one another. It's as important now as it's ever been, and it will not weaken one bit. I know I can count on you all to make sure everyone at Apple feels welcome, respected, and valued. In the words of Dr. Martin Luther King, we may have all come here on different ships, but we're all in the same boat now. So that's certainly the way um, Apple are responding. Uh, Okay, so I'll go back to my list of headlines. Uh, Google, Sergey Brin and uh, Sandar Pichai uh, basically went along to a rally with Google employees. Um, There were then rumors released uh, saying that actually there was another executive order on the way targeting the specific types of visas used to get skilled people into the country, which of course affects the tech industry massively. Um, tech companies then met uh, to try to figure out if they want to launch a legal action against this. Uh, that was followed by Apple, Google, Facebook and Microsoft getting together to draft a joint letter. Uh, and the joint letter is actually, if I may say so, very well written. Um Probably, I'm in two minds. Should I read out the letter or is it too long? I'm wondering, what it, would people have the patience to hear me badly read out this letter or should I skip it? Sure, go for it. Okay, I hate reading out loud, by the way. Dear President Trump, since the country's birth, America has been the land of opportunity, welcoming newcomers and giving them the chance to build families, careers and businesses in the United States. We are a nation made stronger by immigrants. As entrepreneurs and business leaders, our ability to grow our companies and create jobs depends on the contributions of immigrants from all backgrounds. We share your goal of ensuring that our immigration system meets today's security needs and keeps our country safe. 
We are concerned, however, that your recent executive order will affect many visa holders who work hard here in the United States and contribute to our country's success. In a global economy, it is critical that we continue to attract the best and the brightest from around the world. We welcome the changes your, your administration has made in recent days and how the Department of Homeland Security will implement the executive order. And we stand ready to help your administration identify other opportunities to ensure that our employees can travel with predictability and without undue delay. Our nation's compassion is a part of what makes it exceptional and we are committed to helping your administration identify approaches for thorough screening without a blanket suspension of administrations under the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program. While security and vetting procedures can and should always be subject to continuous evaluation and improvement, a blanket suspension is not the right approach. Similarly, we stand ready to identify ways of helping to achieve your stated goal of bringing clarity to the future of the 750,000 dreamers in this country under the protections of the Deferred Act for Childhood Arrivals program in a way that will make people happy and proud. Removing these protections by barring renewals would effectively end the program and eliminate the ability for these dreamers to work and live without fear of deportation. The business community shares your commitment to growing the American economy and expanding job creation across the country. We hire both thousands of Americans and some of the talented people from abroad who work together to help our company succeed and expand our overall employment. As, uh, as you contemplate changes to the nation's complex and interconnected immigration policies, whether, uh, whether business and employment-based visas, refugees or DACA, we hope that you will use us as a resource to help achieve immigration policies that both support the work of American businesses and reflect American values. That was even longer than I thought. Uh, but it was well written. Um, let me see. Then we end up uh, with the Justice Department admitting in court that they revoked 100,000 visas. Uh, the State Department said it was 60,000. And I couldn't help but remember that uh, that guy in the press room said it was about 100 people. Um, federal judge then blocked uh, the ban, put the whole thing on hold. And something which caught my eye through... The security uh, news realm, which is where I hang out for another podcast I do, is that one of the things in the order that isn't getting much attention because of obviously it doesn't affect day-to-day life in the same way that uh, the immigration or the refugee ban does, but a part of the order instructs the U.S. federal government, uh, so any federal agency, uh, to ensure their privacy policies exclude persons who are not United States citizens or lawful permanent residents from the protections of the Privacy Act regarding personally identifiable information. So in other words, do not accidentally grant privacy to foreigners. And that's a problem because the European Union have a deal with America that enables companies like Facebook and Google and so forth to do business in Europe easily called the um, Privacy Shield. And that there are now European lawmakers going, well, I don't think Privacy Shield can stand up to this. So if that collapses, that's a big problem for, well, I guess less for Apple, but certainly for an awful lot of tech companies in Silicon Valley. So I was going to say in short, but not in short. That 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 is, as best as I can work out, the fact of where we are from a tech company point of view. So I guess the first question I have for the panel is, is there anything important that you think needs to be added to this conversation that I have forgotten? 
Okay, I'll take silence <laughs> as a no. <laughs> that, that's a really tough part. I, 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 unfortunately, when you start talking about some of these things, there's there's an assumption at this time that by by taking a pro or con attitude or position on anything, that you immediately agree with everything in that direction. Right. And if you so have one I, criticism to make, you must be some sort of lefty loony. Or right crazy. Yeah, yeah, or if you pick. agree with anything at all, then you must agree with everything at all. And that that's it, not it, a good approach. Yeah, and, and that's I think that's part of the problem here. I think almost anybody's afraid to comment about it. And so, you know, I, I don't know what the solution is to that except for all of us to take a step back, take a deep breath and say, okay, I can I can agree that I like somebody's tie, but I don't like their socks. You know, that it's – Again, very simplistic example, but that's that's the truth. You know, I, I I think this letter was very well written, and I personally like the idea that they approach it from a business like standpoint instead of a policy advocacy standpoint or a position advocacy standpoint. They were pointing out that at least the way I read it, that this has a potentially profound effect on our businesses. That's why we're concerned, and that's why we're writing this. Which is appropriate, I think, right? Because they're they're yeah. they're large corporations. What are they an authority on? Well, large corporations would seem to be something they know about. So by, by writing about it from that point of view, at least they have credibility. Exactly, and and a, and I think it's an appropriate thing. Just like if we were talking about supplying steel, supplying plastic, supplying raw materials, you know, if those were the issues that were being addressed, I mean, we're talking about human resources here. So yeah. I think it's a, I think it's a very reasonable approach for them to take. And happily, it was a respectful approach. Yes. So I, I think everybody wins as far as that, that letter goes. Yeah, and particularly because they're not saying you must do, they're saying we would like to help you do this better, which seems like a positive attitude to bring to the table. It's like we're here to help. Right. Instead uh, of just you're wrong and this has to be flipped right away and and which is just going – I mean how many times does somebody say that to you and all it does is entrench you more? So right. I think approaching it – yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this was a, a, a great way to do it. Now, you can have a lot of debate, debates over whether – whether they should have done it, but I think that the way they did it, they felt it was necessary and, you know, yeah, I, I thought it was a great letter. Yeah. Um, I guess the other thing we should say is from Apple's point of view, this perhaps cuts a little close to the bone for Apple because Steve Jobs was an immigrant from Syria and Syria is one of the countries on the list. So I think people in Apple are certainly going to notice that. I don't know if you want to call that an irony, but that, that, that related fact um, I think that's got to play heavily on Apple's mind. And of do, you, course, do you mind, Bart? Do you mind if I throw something in there? Yeah, work away. I, the, the one thing about this too is that, again, from my perspective, people forget that we're looking at today as we record this, 2017. You know, we we aren't looking at the way the world was then. We're not looking at the way the world will be ten years from now. Right now, we're talking about now. And and I, you know, the immigration situation, you know, in the past has been different. It's clearly different now. And and that's not, by the way, just in case anybody's wondering, I'm not taking a position either way when I say that. It's just there are certain realities in today's world. And so, yeah, you know, jobs, there, there was an immigration factor to jobs involvement with Apple. No question about it. But, you know, that was then. Sure. Um, for, in a in a in a day to day 
sense that I mean, and uh, this has a large impact on, on on tech companies because you have employees who have suddenly become incapable of traveling to and from their family. Uh, or having their family come visit them because if they leave the country, they may never come back. You have executives who are incapable of doing business travel because if they leave the country, they may never get back in. And obviously, from a practical day-to-day running your business point of view, that kind of uncertainty is not something you're going to like as a business. Businesses, as a rule, detest uncertainty. And I think there was a lot of uncertainty created by the way in which this was done. I think it's important to note that it's not just large companies this is affecting either. True. I mean, I think I think it's fair to say. I work for a, a small uh, in-house IT uh, department, um, uh, uh, and we have probably ten percent of our workforce are people who are contracted in and come from other countries. And mm. as soon as you start banning anywhere else in the world you're probably going to cause problems for some companies somewhere and particularly tech companies who haven't always got the right skills in their own country yeah um i guess i should also say uh, so i've linked in the show notes an opinion piece and i've clearly marked it as such uh, from a person who is both a seasoned tech exec with a with a, an apple related history and an immigrant and also a particularly elegant ch- or not elegant eloquent chap he may be elegant too i don't know uh jean-louis gasset uh, wrote an interesting monday note on the topic and uh i should probably also say that this one kind of hits close to home to me in a certain way because well, i am an immigrant i wasn't born in ireland i emigrated here i was young it was my parents who emigrated but i i am nonetheless an immigrant and it, i get cranky when people start, you know, being hard on immigrants. I, I am one. Um, and that, that obviously is going to colour my views. So I should probably mention that now. I'm an immigrant from one European country to another European country. So the experience is obviously much, much different to being an immigrant from a war zone to a stable democracy. Um, obviously, the, 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 chain, the importance of that move from one country to another is much, much greater when you're going from somewhere that's awful to somewhere that's really nice whereas i went from somewhere that's nice to somewhere else that's nice which is, is obviously different but nonetheless i feel as if i have at least some insight into what it's like to be living in a different country and one of the most important things is that the modern world allows us to move over and back so that moving country doesn't mean losing contact with your family or at least it doesn't have to mean that and that's the thing that hits me is that i just imagine myself going oh, I can never see my family again until all this sorts of stuff out. And I think to myself, I'd really hate that. And I guess I can't not have that emotional response. So that is obviously going to colour all of my thinking in this entire topic. And I just want to be honest about that with the listeners that, yeah, I I have some sort of skin in the game in that sense. So, you know, that will colour my views inevitably. I think uh, that personal security is something that um, we a lot of us take for granted, but... Uh, but it's really important. Yes. Yeah. I mean, from from a terror, you know, I mean, terrorism is obviously no one wants terrorism, right? Well, apart from the terrorists. But no, like you know, I hate to use the phrase, but I'm going to use it anyway. Right-thinking people are not pro-terrorists, so it, I think everyone is, is sort of on the same page of going. I would like to avoid being the victim of terrorism. I, I, I don't imagine there's anyone sitting there going, "I know what we want: some more terrorism." Uh, but we do got to be careful that in the in the process of 
preventing terrorism, we don't do more harm than good. Um, and I admit, the last time I was home with my family in Belgium, I had to go through Brussels airport, which was the scene of Belgium's worst terrorist attack in my lifetime anyway, if not in the lifetime of the country. And it was a really weird experience, firstly seeing a place I know so well blown to pieces, and then being back there with a near military-like police presence as I went about my business of travelling. It was not a pleasant experience, I'll be, I'll be honest. Um, so I can see why people might want to prevent that from happening. Um, but having said all that, I'm still, I'm still not in favour of the ban. Yeah, likewise. Anyone else feel they would like to contribute anything else? I feel I may have been hugging the mic a bit. No, do carry on, Bob. Do carry on. Okay, well, okay. So I th- we ended up not shouting at each other, which is probably a good sign in, the, in a story as potentially <laughs> difficult as this. So I'm going to chalk that up as not a disaster. It's a win. It's That's a, a win. win. We'll call it a win. So well, I'm We're very this... reasonable people here, Bart. We're all That's very true. reasonable. You know, which is why, which is why you guys yes. are here because I tend not to some, invite some, people. I think <laughs> <laughs> some, some are more reasonable than others. He said with a strange lint to his voice. Anyway, <laughs> let us move on to the second story, which is usually usually when I'm preparing show notes, there are four stories I hate preparing every year: the first quarter earning call, the second quarter earning call, the third quarter earning call, and the fourth quarter earning call. Whereas this month, I actually quite enjoyed writing about the earnings call, having finished the uh, previous story first. So anyway, Apple had their Q1 2017 earnings call on the 31st of January, so squeaking it in at the end of the month. And Apple do things weird, by the way. So Apple's first quarter of 2016 is actually the last quarter of the calendar year 2016. So basically... It's well, holiday. that's that's actually that's actually like... SOP for a lot of companies. Yeah, it just makes my head hurt. I wish they wouldn't. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, so just to put it into context, what we're talking about is the money Apple made in the last quarter of 2016, which includes the holidays. So it's probably no surprise to anyone that Apple beat... Apple had a good quarter. Apple returned to growth. Uh, They beat expectations. So they beat their own guidance. They also did better than the market thought they would. Uh, They had a record revenue, as in not just bigger than last time, but the biggest they've ever had of $78.4 billion and earnings per share of $3.36, which is, again, not bad going. So there is a link in the show notes to Apple's official press release uh, where you can get all the facts and figures. Um, and we might just have a little wade through those before we go further. Um, so the PDF is sort of the interesting one. So it's labeled as the data summary on the Apple webpage. And that lets us sort of have a look at what it, how this year's numbers compare to last year's numbers. And I guess in terms of money, the outlier. So basically, if you look at the year-over-year change in terms of money... Everything is up apart from one one row in the in the spreadsheet has a minus sign in front of it, and that is Greater China. Apple made twelve percent less money in Greater China in the last quarter of twenty sixteen than in the last quarter of twenty fifteen, which is interesting given that everyone thought that China was the future of everything. Um mm. I don't know enough about economics to know how panicked I should be about that or not, but it certainly is this the number that is not like all the others. Anyone feel they they can give us some 
insight into that number? I wish we could. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really. Uh, I, Linda sent her apologies, by the way. Normally, normally Linda is gracious enough to grace us uh, for these shows because she knows this stuff. Uh, but unfortunately, yeah, she wasn't able to make it. We need you, Linda. <laughs> um, I, I did send Linda an email basically saying, I think this was a good quarter. I think the basic story is things went good for Apple. And I got a reply back saying, yep, they did. So at least we're not a million miles off on that. And my basic, basic, basic summary, it was a good quarter. Um, well, what everybody was complaining about from first quarter of, of 2016 was that they had a, a year-over-year drop in revenue. Uh, but what most of those analysts don't take into account is that that was also for the, the first quarter of 2015 was the uh, original release of the, the bigger iPhone, the iPhone yeah. 6 and the iPhone uh, 6 Plus. And there was such a huge buildup of demand for a larger iPhone that, you know, it didn't matter if, if Apple came out with, with magic unicorn bread for the next quarter, they were never going to beat those numbers. So, you know, when people talk about, Oh, look at this huge drop off. It's like, okay, well, let's throw a little context in there because if you take out just the first quarter of, of uh, 2016 and look at the the growth of revenue for Apple since the iPhone has been released, it's been a, a relatively steady climb. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the was it the euphemism last year that it kept on coming up was it, it'll be a tough compare, which basically yeah. meant we did way too well last year, and now now we have a problem. Well, I mean, yeah, but as far as problems go, that's not a bad one to have. Except for the year after when everyone's forgotten why your compare <clears> isn't good. Uh, what's more interesting to me, because I'm not a I'm not a financial gurus guy, is the second table that Apple give you is units. So rather than looking at it, so basically look at it by product instead of by place. Mm-hmm. And what you see is that iPhone units are up uh, by about five percent, as is iPhone revenue. Um, the Mac is actually up a little bit in terms of both units and revenue, which is up one percent in units, seven percent in revenue. Uh, Which is surprising, is actually. Oh, well, yeah, actually, yeah, the, the, especially the difference in the one percent and the seven percent. So obviously, those MacBook Pros aren't selling terrible because whatever they were selling, no, was that expensive. was that was actually that was actually like one of the like highest selling computers in general. Not even you know, just taking Apple out of the equation, there weren't many other companies that were selling as many. <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, laptops as Apple was for the first quarter of uh, 2017 fiscal year. Yeah. Because I, I know the press this, dinged that laptop something terrible, but I, I think people like it. Well, that, that's it. If you look back and think about how the the iPhone 7 had nothing to offer, there was nothing new, there was nothing that was worth, you know, so the, the, the results are going to be terrible. And now the new MacBook uh, Pro with Touch Bar. Well, it's not enough, and we can only get 16 gigs of RAM, and, you know, they they yeah. give you every reason. They hate it. Yeah, and that th- this is not going to be a success. And guess what? People buy it anyway, and we can just... We can get into a lot of reasons about why people buy it, but at the end of the day, that's that's what is being predicted here by by the analysts. And I know if Linda were here, she would disagree with me seriously. But I, sometimes I wonder, and and I, Bart, you were talking about your vision being colored in one direction for mm-hmm. one reason. Clearly, my vision is colored uh, in another reason in, in another direction because I'm an Apple advocate. But 
I look at this stuff and, and then I look at what it is coming out on the other side. And I'm not saying there aren't some good ideas on the other side, but overall for the experience and for everything, I just I just don't understand why they continue to discount those factors. Yeah, it's never ceased to amaze that you go to a meeting with a five-year-old MacBook Pro and people look and go, oh, wow, what a loving new laptop. That's such a sleek design. And I'm going, no, this thing's ancient. You should see what they're doing today. Yeah. I mean, I've had that happen with 2011 MacBook Pro I have. People go, oh, wow, what a lovely laptop. It's like, no, this thing's ancient. You should see the little 12-inch MacBook I have at home. Anyway. Of course, we, of course, we don't really know, do we, how many of those are going to be the new MacBook Pro. But having yeah, said that, uh, having said that, I think it's it's possible to say that of those people who were disappointed by it, the chances are if they've been waiting for a new Mac that they'd buy not a, a PC, but <laughs> another another Mac, just not the new one. <laughs> so they'd still sell a Mac. Possibly. You see, the, the thing that strikes me is that the number of units only went up by 1%, but the revenue went up by 7%. So that implies to me that whatever the blip, whatever the increase was, it was in something at the higher end of the line, not the lower no, end. That's true. Yeah, that's true. We, you know, there, there haven't been new iMacs, so it probably wasn't a big increase in the 5K iMac. So it does kind of make me think that the MacBook Pros took a jump. But again, it's just guesswork, because all we know is that whatever they sold, it cost more than what they sold last time. Yeah. Uh, the biggest increase, not surprisingly, or, well, I think we've already alluded to it, rather, is revenue, which is up 18%. And then we have two minus numbers. The first of them is other products, which is a vague catch-all category, which includes the iPod and the Apple Watch. Now, it seems quite reasonable to me that the iPod sales are going through the floor, yeah. which means it's very difficult to know from these numbers what we should see in terms of um, Apple Watch numbers. So those numbers aren't visible here, but what Tim Cook did say, which is, you, you can argue is, as Ken Ray would say, fun, fun with numbers without numbers, apparently the Apple Watch had its best quarter ever. Okay, that's a data point with very little data in it. I received my new Apple Watch 2 on Friday, which was very nice because it wasn't scheduled to arrive until Tuesday, so it made me very happy that it arrived before the weekend. I had to wait three weeks for it, and it was released months ago. So either they're not making enough or they're selling too many, but they're certainly they're certainly back-ordered, so I don't know what to make of that either, but that probably implies they're doing okay. Well, I think that, um, uh, you know, Tim Tim Cook is is known for being kind of a, a supply chain guru. Hmm. I think he he looked at the numbers of of how the original and the series 1 did and said, you know, do we really need to have that many cuz there was I think there was quite a bit of backlog from previous versions. So yeah. when when the series 2 came out, they may have gotten caught a little flat-footed in, you know, I mean, it, it, it this isn't like what Nintendo does where they constrain the channel to, you know, build up expectations over, you know, how great the Nintendo Switch is or, or you know, whatever their latest product is. Uh, this is this is a company talking about Apple that tries not to make more stuff than what they know they can sell. 
they're perfectly willing to sell you anything that that they have. And uh, I think they were just kind of caught by surprise that uh, maybe the Watch 2 did did better than they expected. I still don't have one, but, you know, um, some people seem to really like them. I'm very, well, I'm very happy and I'm quite uh, so... Uh, I, I, I owe my darling beloved a big thank you. He basically came to me and he said, so I want an Apple Watch. Why don't you buy a new one and I'll take yours? I was like, well, I'm never going to say no to that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good deal. Have my watch and I'll buy a new one. So I now have the the the, uh, the the silver one with the Nike sport band, which is gorgeous. That, that's such a pleasant to wear band, that with all the little holes in it. Um and I am just blown away by how much better the battery life is in the Series 2 than the Series 1. Like, I wasn't expecting a big change. I have done... I have tracked five hours of working out today. Five hours with the thing doing workout tracking. And I have 55% battery life left. Like, if, I, if that was my Series 1 watch, it would be on the charger now as I podcast. Because otherwise it wouldn't last me the rest of the day. Whereas now it's happily on my arm and it will stay there until I go to bed and it will still have lots of charge left. So it's physically the same, but wow, there's nice brains in here. Really quite pleased with it. Anyway, that's a a slight digression. The other number I've been avoiding so far is the largest minus number on the sheet. Year over year units for the iPad minus 19%. Year-over-year revenue on the iPad, minus 22%. Now, there is at least a part of the iPhone 6 Plus problem going on here, because at the end of the last quarter a year ago was the launch of the much-anticipated... Was it 12-inch? Not 13-inch. 12.9-inch. Oh, it is 13-inches, yeah. So the big 13-inch... The big one. the, The giganto big iPad was released in the year ago quarter and there was absolutely positively nothing new iPad wise in the quarter they're comparing it to. So we went from getting that giganto iPad plus pencil to having nothing really new to talk about. So that certainly won't have helped the compare, but at the same time, those numbers still keep going down and they're going down, but they're not, they still sold 9.3 million of them, which I guess isn't awful. And they still made $4 million of revenue out of them. No, hang on. $4 million or billion? Uh, what do I need to multiply that column by? Oh, where's It would have to be billion. Units in thousands, revenue in millions. So 4,000 million. You're right, 4.2 billion in revenue. So that's... That's not bad. Like, that, that's... No, there's, there's a lot of companies that'd be pretty damn happy with that. Yeah, so it hasn't, it's not that the product is dead, but the product is certainly not growing like a lot of people would like to see. Um, I think we've said before, haven't we, that the iPad sells more like the Macs. It does, yeah. Uh, And people are happy with their iPads for quite a long time. So they're they're not going to keep selling them month, you know, quarter on quarter because people are like them. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely positively adore my iPad. I think it's one of my favorite computing devices that gets used for many hours every single day. And in the entire time the product line has existed, I have bought three of them. Yeah. Because I replace it about as often as I replace my iMac, which is every four or five years. I had a, uh, a Generation 3, which went back four or five years before uh, 
because I was basically waiting for a bigger one. So yeah. I held on to that that version three until the original iPad Pro came out, and then I bought one, which is actually exactly it, it what had, I did. Yeah, yeah, it had to have something significant to make me spend anywhere from you know eight hundred to eleven hundred dollars, and of the bigger size is what I wanted. Yeah, but the interesting thing too is that there's a hand me down factor. Yes. That, okay. If if I don't. If if I don't find the value in a brand new iPad, I'll, I'll keep this one, but I may not be, I may not be passing it. Well, I won't be passing it down, obviously. But when I buy a new one, I'm definitely going to pass it down because while it may not have you know uh, feature X or Y that was really important to me, it's more than good enough for son, daughter, boyfriend, girlfriend, cousin. Yeah. You know, well, that's, that's what happened in this wife. house. Yeah. I, Oops, I have sorry. bought three iPads, but there's two iPad users here. Yeah. So, you know, there you go. I, so I, I have to wonder, it would be interesting, and I know there's no way to do it, but it would be interesting to see uh, a, a, a chart that says, you know, what, the, what, what has been the growth of iPad users over the past two or three years versus the number of iPads sold. Because I, I, don't, right. I don't see iPads going on the shelf very often. I just hear about them getting retasked to either secondary purposes or to a, a new user. Yeah, it's it's not like the netbooks that is was it Phil Schiller said are sitting in sock drawers somewhere. I mean, they keep being used. Because my first gen iPad was used by the better half until I bought my giganto big iPad last year. So that first generation iPad continued in use until one year ago. And my third gen is now his main iPad, while I have the Giganto iPad, and he thinks it's stupid and far too big, and he hates it, which is fine by me because I have it, so it's all good. Uh, but that means that the, that iPad's life, like that first gen iPad lasted until last year. That's a huge lifetime for these products in, in active right. real world use, not, not, uh, not sitting on a shelf gathering dust. So I think the number looks like put your hair on fire, but actually I think it's just there was no iPad, then there was, and everyone bought one, and now people are quite slow to replace them, not because they hate them, but because they keep working and they're, they're just fine. Thank you very much. And let's face it, there's very little out there um, in the tablet market that I would say, oh, I've got to get rid of my iPad because this, this is the next really gorgeous thing. I've just got to have that. And, the, and there just hasn't been any, any – I mean, there haven't been that many new tablets from all the other vendors, has there? Well, they're, they're doing the same thing that they did – with computers it's a race to the bottom and you know they they put in the cheapest components and and the the cheapest case that they can put a tablet around and say look you know you can get a you know just like the ipad with its 7.9 inch screen here's an android tablet 7.9 inch screen and it's only 75 dollars okay well you know there's a problem there you know there's a little bit of disconnect you can't expect a 75 dollar tablet that's running two generations back of Android to work as well as a current iPad. Right. You got what you yes, paid I for. Agree. You yeah. paid $75. Exactly. You got $75 worth of tablet. Not free. And why is that? But why does that get overlooked so often? That, that's, because it doesn't, that, meet, it doesn't meet the narrative. But I don't. Why is tech different? Right. There is. I have yet to hear someone say that Porsche are doomed because they charge too much for their cars. <laughs> why can't why is it that in automotive world 
there is room for Mercedes and BMW and Audi and all these high-end cars, and no one thinks that's a, a doomed business model. And in computers, if you don't make it as cheap as possible, you're an idiot. Uh, it does it I, does not compute. It's the difference between hundreds of different car makers and essentially two different operating systems. So you have everybody on one side that's using Windows, and for the most part, you know, I'm not discounting Linux users, but for the most part, everybody else is on a Mac. Right. See, so and is- everybody likes to think that that they've made the right decision, and if you don't make the same decision that they did, you're an idiot. You know, I mean, you're back to politics again, essentially. Well, sure, there is certainly that emotional thing that when you make a choice, you feel emotionally invested in that choice, and I know he disagrees with the choice, makes you feel insecure. That's a human thing, and that's certainly not going away. But do we look at computers as being just Macs and PCs? Because I don't. As far as I'm concerned, phones are as much computers as PCs these days. So basically, the largest ah, operating system well. in the world is Android. Don't you think it's? Don't you think it's more about a value judgment? So people make a value judgment about cars when they see an expensive-looking car. They know that it looks like an expensive-looking car, and they think, oh, I bet that costs a lot of money. But people don't seem to have that sort of opinion about computers. They quite often think that's a, good point. a computer is a computer, and they don't understand why there's such a big difference between a thousand pounds. Because they, even though the Apple ones look a bit sexier and they're thin, and they're, they don't, when people look at them, they don't think, oh, wow, what brilliant engineering... They you just see, think, right, that's true online, right? And there's a cheap one over here. And okay, it doesn't look quite as sexy as that one, but it's still a computer. And and for some reason, they don't make that the same connection they make with cars. They don't make with computers. And like you, I don't really understand why that's the case. There, there is a certain element like the, that in the abstract, they don't make that. They look at it on paper and they go, well, this has four gigs of RAM and that has four gigs of RAM. Yes. And, yeah. and therefore, why well, don't see the difference? But in the physical world, when people pick up, when people see me with my 12-inch MacBook, the assumption they make is that must be a two $3,000 laptop. And I'm like, no, that's the bottom-of-the-line Mac laptop these days. And it just makes their heads explode. It's like, what? It's like, yeah, that's it's 1,400 quid in euro. But that's that's Apple's base model these days. This is not a high-end fancy pants laptop. This is just what Apple considered to be a normal laptop. And their jaw hits the floor. So when faced with it in the physical world, it does often compute. But when they're sitting at home trying to decide what to buy on yeah. curries.com or whatever cheaper website they're buying their laptops from, they're just all they're looking at is how many terabytes of hard disk space, how many gigabytes of RAM, and how many megahertz of CPU. And when you, you view the world through that small subset of statistics it's or specs yeah it just it just doesn't you cannot see it what it compute. is you're getting it doesn't compute yeah you don't see what you're getting for yes and all, money. All, all, all their adverts will be saying look how cheaply we can sell these yes because they'll then they'll sell lots of them yep but the other factor that that bothers me and, and i agree with everything you all said i'm still intrigued by the people that don't appreciate the experience and and I don't mean some touchy feely, you know. Oh, this 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 uh, this interface is fantastic, but just the practical practical day to day of how much uptime do you have? How many problems do you have with your machine? And 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 excuse me, with your OS. Mm-hmm. And what are the things about the OS that you don't like? 
like maybe automatic upgrades in the background with with that telling you about it or you know you, you come in one day and your com- environment has been completely changed because you said yes to a particular up you know uh, yeah. the dialogue you know th- i see those things frequently on the windows side and a whole lot less frequently on the Mac side. I'm not going to say it never happens, but you know, it, it just doesn't happen as often. And yet, they will go with the, the cheaper ex- and, and then curse and scream and wonder why their machines don't work. Well, you know, or why they have so many problems, or why they got a virus. Well, you know, it's not hard to understand if you if you pay just a little bit of attention. Yeah, no, it's strange you should say that. It's strange you should say that, Chuck, because my brother um, uh, was completely on PCs. His wife had uh, laptops. Uh, he had two machines at home. Um, he was constantly ringing me up and saying, oh, I'm having so many problems with these machines. The graphics cards aren't working properly and uh, blah, blah, blah. And I kept saying, get a Mac. Just get a Mac. And eventually... He bought uh, an iMac. Uh, he went the whole hog and bought a 27-inch iMac. Mm-hmm. And uh, and now they both have iPads and they both have um, uh, MacBooks. And uh, they haven't looked back. And he, he never rings me saying he's having problems now. Yeah. yeah. So I think you're absolutely yeah. right. I, I had a, a similar experience where basically I was always getting phone calls from my family about, you know, this weird thing has just happened and that weird thing has just happened. And at one point I said, look, I use a Mac all day, every day. I don't know Windows anymore. I've never used Windows 7. Can't help you. Sorry. If you'd like my help, get a Mac. And my intention was that I would get out of having to be technical support because they just keep using Windows and they go annoy someone else. What actually happened was they all got Macs. (laughs) But it was okay because they still didn't ring me anymore. So it was fine. They weren't having the same kinds of problems. Exactly. Anyway, that, that, that was good fun. Um... There's a few more links in the show notes uh, just to mention that the Apple services business on its own is actually a Fortune 100 company if you were to just look at its revenue on its own, which is interesting. And we have the usual links uh, to uh, the transcript of everything Tim Cook said and so forth uh, from iMore and those kind of things. So they're all in the show notes at let's-talk.ie. I'm going to jump us on into the next big story, which is... It would appear that um, Phil Schiller is definitely seeing his role as head of app stores as something he should do something about and not just a responsibility he should be proud of and have on his CV. Uh, so there is another big change coming to the app store. There is a an app, an app reviews API coming out, which has two major features. So the first is the ability of dev- for developers to respond to reviews. So this is there's a major problem where people post stupid and idiotic reviews where they say, well, this product is useless because it can't do X. And the developers are also powerful because they go, no, no, just go file, select, whatever, and it'll, be, it'll work fine. I'll do exactly what you want. And they just haven't been able to say it. So at least now they'll be able to have a reply back. And the next person who comes along to look at the review can see both answers, and that should be useful. Uh, but the other thing that I particularly like is that Apple are going to take down the barriers to giving reviews. So it's going to be less intrusive, less difficult... So therefore, more people are likely to give reviews. But at the same time, they're going to rate limit the use of the API so that no app can ask you for a review for more more than three times in any year. So Hmm. I think that's going to be a win-win because it's going to be easier to leave reviews and apps are going to be less naggy about it because Apple are going to make sure that they don't keep nagging you about it because the API simply won't let them. 
So I, I'm hopeful that this is a positive uh, development. Anyone have any thoughts, particularly any contrary thoughts? Definitely no contrary thoughts. No, yeah. I'm I, I, right there with you. I think this is this is a very good thing, and hopefully, we'll clean up a lot of the issues that have been had with the App Store. It's nice that Apple are listening. That Apple are making changes. Okay, um, I'm going to move us on then because I just looked at my watch and it's like, oh, okay, we've been going a while. Uh, the last story is, is one of these. It's not a story. It's just a whole collection of stories that all happened in January, and. I don't even know if this is a selection bias or something real. So I'm going to just read out the stories and then we can have a conversation about it. So Chris Lattner, the father of Swift, leaves Apple for Tesla. Yoko uh, Matsuka has left Apple to return to Nest after less than a year with Apple having come from Nest. Apple senior designer Matt Casebolt leaves Apple for Tesla. Uh, He's the guy who gave us the original MacBook Air and the Touch Touch Bar MacBook Pro which we were talking about earlier. Apple Global Marketing Communications Director Musa Tarki has left for Ford Motor Company. On the other side of the ledger, Dropcam founder and next executive Greg Duffy has come to Apple. And uh, former Spotify exec Steve Savak has come to Apple to run indie relations for Apple Music. So is it a case that there's always a churn? And that it just so happens that the media have latched on to this particular chair and are highlighting this in our news feeds and therefore it looks like all of a sudden there's an exodus. So is this normal? Or is this actually a problem and is Apple like hemorrhaging talent at a spectacular rate? And my inclination is to think that this is just normal, but it's just that, that we're noticing it. We're having our attention drawn to it, which is making it look scary, but actually it's fine. But I would particularly appreciate everyone else's opinions on how to interpret these individual pieces of news when you put them together in aggregate the ones that concern me would be Chris Chris Latner mm-hmm. and um, uh, which one is it here uh, Matt Casebolt uh, the other ones I think is just normal churn so Chris Latner did an interview on the Accidental Tech podcast which was amazing uh, for a start, so a big plug out to the accident, the ATP guys there. That was a, a superbly good show. And before I listened to that show, I was panicking about Chris Natter leaving Apple. And after listening to that show, I wasn't, um, because basically it seemed clear that he wasn't leaving because Apple was a terrible place to work, or that Apple were in some way stifling him. It was basically, I built a thing, and then I move on. I build a thing, and then I move on. Well, I've built a thing, and now I'm moving on, and. I guess for talented people, that's not unusual that you you meet a challenge, you finish it, and then you move on. So then I'm you want to do panicky. something else. Yeah, I'm less panicky than I was. Having listened to him speak, I was way, way, way less panicky than I was before I listened to him speak. I wouldn't blame them for moving on to Tesla, in all honesty. I, I, I think go, that. Well, no, that's right. And I think, you know, they're, they're pretty cutting edge, aren't they? And and these are obviously the kind of people that like to be on the cutting edge of development uh, or, or design. And, and a Tesla would seem like a perfect fit. Whether that's good for uh, Apple or not is, is debatable, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, something Apple definitely has, and I don't know if it's a problem, but it's definitely a fact, is that there is, if you're a really good designer then 
you cannot rise to the top of Apple for the foreseeable future because there already is a superb designer at the top of Apple. He's, 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 he's ah, British chap. Why does his name escape me the moment I want to say it? Uh, Johnny Ive. Johnny Ive. So if you are the kind of person who wants to rise to the top, you can go so far in Apple, but then you do have to leave until Johnny retires. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because the last thing I would want is for Johnny Ive to be forced out of Apple because there's people behind them who also would like his job. I mean, you know, it's sort of like, you know, come to Apple, do great work and then move on. Kind of okay with that as long as there's still people coming to Apple to do great work. Yes. Because if that dries Agreed. up, then we're in terrible trouble. Okay. Everybody wants to to to, to attribute some big reason or you know that this is indicative of of something wrong or right at apple and i i think you started out bart by saying you know, this is this normal churn i think most of this is more normal churn and somebody just somebody looks over at apple who for better or worse i think is seen as a gold standard right now and says gee if we could only hire that guy and they throw more money at him or more opportunities or a title or something that really punches their button and means something and they say okay i'll go over here and try this for a while and you know, and I mean, Apple may have done the very th- same thing with uh, with Steve Savak. Yeah. You know that we we think we need somebody to talk to the indie labels, and he's the guy that's making it happen over at Spotify, and so we need him. And they reached out and they got him. Yeah. Uh, to me, the, the really important thing is the young kids who are fresh out of college, who are full of energy, full of enthusiasm, and hopefully full of raw talent. Where are they going? And as long as they see Apple as a, an exciting place to go to start their careers, I'm not too worried. But if if they come out of college and go, Apple, psh, why would I go there? That's the point where I put my hair on fire and start panicking. I mean, I think there are two ways of looking at this, aren't there? That you could look at it by saying, okay, these people, they're a lot of them fairly senior mm-hmm. and they're seeing better opportunities and moving elsewhere. Or you could say that a number of them are a bit bored and therefore they're moving on to new things and both of those things you know the the bored one would be bad (laughs) right yeah do you want a bored person in your company yeah no um so i mean it's those two points of view isn't it and and really this is too small a number to be able to tell whether that this is a trend or a yeah i'm with chuck i think it's mostly just a trend well, I'm trying to think uh, sorry, of the phrases. The, yeah. the cliche, I think it's a cliche. You know, the, the plural of anecdote is not data. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, that's our four main stories covered. So just before we finish up the show, I just want to quickly mention some other things that caught my eye in the Apple news sphere in January 2017 that I think we should mention, even if they're not quite as meaty to talk about. So... It's important to note that there is a thing called the Partnership for AI, which is an industry group focused on, quote, driving forward advances in AI while protecting the privacy and security of consumers. Probably a talking shop of some sort by the sounds of it. But anyway, Amazon, Google, Facebook, IBM and Microsoft are in there already. And we now know that Apple is joining them as uh, I believe Apple is officially a founding member because this thing is only getting off the ground now. So I don't think that's surprising. I don't think that's shocking, but it's it's noteworthy. So we have noted it. Uh, just to give people a heads up that Apple have released a major update to both of their audio apps. So Logic Pro 10 got a big update, as did GarageBand. And if you happen to be a student, there's also a related piece of news to say that Apple are offering 
really quite large discounts on their pro app. So you can basically buy their full pro app suite worth $630 for $200, which is a pretty darn good discount if you're a student. Um, the Associated Services for the Blind are honouring Apple for their work in accessibility with the Louis Braille Award. And I think given how much effort Apple put into making all their products accessible, I would I would like to say that was a well-earned award and well done, Apple. Yeah. Uh, Tim Cook is receiving an award in his personal, well, sort of slightly in his personal capacity. So there's the, a place called the Museum, which is t- dedicated to... Uh, news, free speech, politics, and all that kind of stuff. That's uh, in Roslyn, Virginia, by the way. Is that in, is that perhaps your neck of the woods? Yes, it is. A little, little bit of hometown pride there. Sounds like an interesting place. Yeah. Woohoo! <laughs> uh, so they are giving Tim Cook their free expression award, quote, for his leadership in creating technology that has a profound impact on how we communicate and for having used his spotlight to take a public stand on major societal issues, including racial equality, privacy, protecting the environment, access to education, and LGBT rights. I would say that was also a well-earned award. Thank you, Tim. Or well done, Tim. Uh, finally, I'm including this because I remember doing another show called uh, the International Mac Podcast. And at the time, Greenpeace were being idiots. Greenpeace were lambasting Apple for not having plans to do things well. Whereas everyone else was selling Greenpeace this, you know, oh, in future we're going to do amazing things. And Greenpeace were lapping it up. Apple just kept their head down and did the work. And lo and behold, Apple are the best at being green compared to Dell and all these other people who Greenpeace were in love with. And Greenpeace have seen sense and have decided that maybe it's better to judge companies by what they do instead of what they say they will do, and have yet again named Apple as their top green company. So uh, I I sort of think about sodding time, Greenpeace, that you've realised this, and well done for coming to your senses. And a story that caught my eye related to this is an interesting look at exactly how much solar energy Apple is producing, and the answer is it's an awful lot, and that's over on the Mac Observer, so that is linked in the show notes as a related story. And then finally, I don't think we could possibly have a January 2017 show and not mention the fact that in January 2007, Steve Jobs introduced the world to the iPhone. So on the one hand, I can't believe it's been 10 years. And on the other hand, I can't believe it's only been 10 years. It's it's one of those very <laughs> things. It's, uh, I was hand, at that keynote. Yeah, I was too. Uh, that was what uh, that was. I, I was obviously a much much more recent Apple convert, and that, in some ways, that keynote completely spoiled me because I thought they were all like that. I thought that was normal, <laughs> <laughs> and I was very disappointed for quite a few keynotes afterwards because that's not normal. That was an amazing piece of showmanship, and an amazing earth changing product. Because yeah, but we had Ashton Kutcher at uh, one of the later ones. <laughs> oh yes, that totally made up for it. Oh yeah. Because... You know, I, I I still watch that um, that video occasionally. Yeah. Um, uh, and it still excites me. You talking about the actual yeah. product the, release or the, the original movie product release? Of, yeah. No, the original product release of the iPhone. Okay. I I just think it it as as Bart said, it was wonderful showmanship, and it really just makes you feel excited about what's what's coming. 
Yeah, no, it's like um, one of the podcasts I listened to played played it back. Uh, the, the, you know, the sort of the famous bits of it, and I, I was out cycling, so I was only listening to it. I could only see it in my imagination, but it actually literally made the hairs in the back of my neck stand up. It's such a superb piece of work. And, yeah, it was. I mean, the iPhone it, itself. So Apple's aim was: we will consider it a success if we take one percent of the smartphone market, which at the time seemed impossible. Because you had giants like <laughs> Nokia and BlackBerry. And it seemed insane that this little computer company was going to come along and sell 1% of phones. Well, where is Nokia now and where is BlackBerry now? And 1%? I think you'll find Apple's doing quite a bit better than 1%. And that was 1% of the smartphone market. Whereas Apple now, we don't judge Apple in terms of 1% of the smartphone market. We judge Apple in terms of the phone market because that's yep. kind of all that's left. 15 to 20%. Yeah. So it's, it's, I mean, it just it staggers me. And you can look at it in terms of raw numbers and say, well, wow, Apple have sold like many billions of iPhones. And that's amazing. But even bigger than that, before the iPhone, smartphones looked like Blackberries. And everything anyone was planning looked like a Blackberry. Basically, yeah. a, a, a like Android. Yeah, exactly. Google's Android was initially a Blackberry clone. And then Apple released the iPhone and literally the entire industry did a, did a complete U-turn. And now all phones look like iPhones. Perhaps a little bit too much like iPhones if the never-ending Samsung Apple cases are by. <laughs> yeah, Apple should sue them. So, it, I mean, it is noteworthy that Apple have had such a profound effect on the market in terms of what they sell. And just the whole market changed, which, frankly, the last time anyone did that was with the Mac. Where everyone was like, "What are you talking about? Only amateurs use mice. The real, the real future is in command lines and Com- all that kind of command stuff." Command line, yeah. And I mean, I'm a Linux nerd. I spend a lot of time on the terminal, but I like having my terminals inside shiny GUIs. I, I don't like having them be the only interface of the computer. So, it, well, you think, Bart, you think about it. Your your point about you know the the Mac and then the iPhone, mm-hmm. and then the iPad from a tablet standpoint. And now, obviously, it's a much smaller market, but are we seeing the same thing uh, with the AirPods? You know, that all of a sudden, uh, th- this market is being brought to the front and remade by by Apple, at least based now, I know it's early days, mm-hmm. and but based on this last quarter. A- Apple has this tendency to go in and do things right, do, th- do things the way that either we wanted them done or the way that the way we wanted them done without knowing that's how we wanted them done. Yeah. And and I, I love that about Apple. Yeah, I completely yeah. agree with you, Chuck. And the, the thing I like to draw people's attention to is that none of these revolutionary products, they're only seen as amazing by the world in hindsight. On the day the iPhone released, it was no... The analysts thought it was a stupid idea. Like, not all of them, obviously, but... An awful lot of people thought it was a really dumb idea, and there's plenty of video of Steve Ballmer making a retrospective yeah. complete idiot of himself. At the time, he thought he was on very solid ground, but he was a complete idiot. So people say, well, the you Apple say, You Watch, say that like it's a surprise. Well, it was slightly, it's slightly unfair to, to, to bash someone when they're down, but anyway, poor Steve. People talk about the Apple Watch as being a disaster because it's not like the iPhone. Actually, I think you'll find it is like the iPhone. And in terms of percentage of market share, it's doing an awful lot better than the iPhone was at this stage in the iPhone's development. So I wouldn't be at all surprised if he's discovered that the future of personal computers is small wearable devices, be they 
the entire computer in your ear, or be they the brains of your computer on your wrist and the rest of your computer in your ear. But basically, when the when the Apple Watch and the little uh, AirPods become powerful enough, why bother with the phone? Why bother with the computer? Maybe maybe that's the real future of personal computing is that our computers are just magically around us and we just talk to them and they do stuff for us and they tell us stuff and they have our backs maybe that's the future maybe I'm dreaming a bit but you know what I mean it's possible yeah folks thank you so very much for giving of your time as always and being insightful and entertaining and fun Um, always a pleasure doing this show so in no particular order uh, because I can't remember what order I introduced you in Actually, I think we started on my side of the Atlantic, so let's start the other side of the Atlantic this time. Um, Guy, would you like to tell the listeners where they can hear more of your work? Yes, you can find me and my co-host, the infamous Gazmaz, over on the MyMac.com podcast, a weekly podcast with a slightly irrelevant point of view with all things (laughs) Apple. Don't you mean irreverent? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> At what point am I supposed to go, Wah! Oh, uh, that's if I say uh, that my Twitter handle is MacParrot. There you go. <laughs> Thank you, Guy. Always always <laughs> a pleasure having you on. Um, Chuck, where can people find more of your work? You can find me over at MacVoices.com. That's where you'll go find everything. I ha- and also, I'm plugging a new MacBook, uh, excuse me, a Mac Voices, <laughs> Mac Voices <laughs> Facebook selling page. selling MacBooks, Chuck? Yeah, yeah, I got it all twisted up. A new Mac Voices Facebook page. Um, so you can find us on Facebook, but uh, obviously MacVoices.com is the place to go. And you can find me on Twitter as at Chuck Joyner. Cool. Thank you, Chuck. Uh, Nick, is there any links you'd like to give the listeners? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, under the uh, handle Spligosh, S-P-L-I-G-O-S-H. Excellent. Thank you very much. Now, dear listeners, you will find links to all of the stories that has informed our discussions, and um, there are quite a lot of them this month because I thought I might, uh, I believe the phrase is C-Y-A, or C-M-A, I guess, because it's my you-know-what. Basically, everything I've used as sort of what I've picked out as the news stories that have informed my thinking this month are all linked in the show notes under the various headings we have gone through. So you'll find all of that over at lets-talk.ie. While you happen to be over there, there are three large blue buttons under a heading named support the show. I very much appreciate everyone who has used those buttons in the past, and I would encourage people to please consider using those buttons in the future. We are getting very close to a milestone in terms of Patreon um, that it would make me very happy if we crossed that milestone. So basically, we're getting close to my getting $50 per show, uh, which would basically get us to the point where my monthly costs are covered and I can then start to do things like invest in a new microphone. And actually, this this poor microphone has been with me for about 10 years, and I know one of these days is going to die, and I'd quite like to have a boom arm and stuff like that. So if we cross the $50 per show mark, I can actually start to invest in hardware and software to make podcasting work better for me. And I will have done something I have dreamed of doing for a very long time, covered all of my costs so that I can podcast without it costing me money, which would be nice. So all of you who do support the show on Patreon, thank you all so very, very much because it's only because of you that we're even vaguely within sight of this sort of mental goal. Um, 
So I really do appreciate your support. Uh, there was also a plain old PayPal button, uh, which is a very useful way of doing sort of one-off, perhaps slightly larger donations, because the way PayPal fees work, if you send $2 via PayPal, PayPal get like about three quarters of the money, which is just a terrible waste for everyone involved. Whereas if you send $5, it, they pay tr- or PayPal get a tiny percentage of the money. So it sort of works out. Uh, and then there's a Zazzle store, which is basically you buy merchandise. So you become a walking advertisement for this for the podcast. And I get a percentage of that sale. So you support the show directly and indirectly. And of course, you can support the show by tweeting about it, by reviewing us on iTunes, by reviewing us in any other podcasting service, by telling your friends, and maybe just by sending me a tweet saying you like the show. Because, you know, who doesn't like to have their ego stroked every now and then? Uh, anyway, thank you to everyone who supports the show in any way whatsoever. I've been your host, Bart Boucher, so you can find me at bartb.ie. And until next time, happy computing. You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Everybody, please stand by to stand by. And, uh, well, we'll be right back. And welcome, everyone, back to the MyMac.com podcast. All right, so so, so let's, um, let's carry on. But I'm still laughing about something that happened just before we started recording, and we're going to talk about that right now. I don't know if you, you heard, Guy, but Sal, <laughs> Sal Segoin, did you know that? Yeah, I heard that. <laughs> He's leaving Apple. <laughs> it's a tragedy for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, this is not going well, is it? We are so childish. We, we are. Really are. It's the G-Men on the MyMac.com podcast.